Welcome everybody to the Troubadour podcast. Today I have Chris Depretis, right? That's right. All right. I always get last names incorrectly. Uh, what is Depretis, by the way? What? It's Italian. Italian. Okay. Yeah. Actually, but, there's a, a street in Rome named after uh, Augustino Depretis. Okay. Who's Augustino Depretis? I don't think he was a good guy, but he was like, <laughs> okay. he was like a leader in Italy a long time ago. Okay. But, the the pre Mussolini Mussolini. Kind of like that, okay. is what I understand. Okay. I haven't done my research on him, but uh, you probably shouldn't. Maybe it's one of those not. things you like close, leave that door closed. Yeah, but he's not bad enough that they yeah. like have removed the street name or something. And maybe he wasn't bad at all. I just well, do they have a Mussolini Street anywhere in Italy? I don't know. I bet they do. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, so, in his hometown or something. I mean, maybe not. I hope they would get rid of stuff like that at some point. Yeah, like, like in H- a modern Hitler Avenue yeah, or like whatever. He, like I wouldn't want to live. Like send me some post mail via. Oh yeah, I'm on three two three Hitler <laughs> Avenue. <laughs> Right, it's like Mao, you know, way. Uh-uh, yeah, not that stuff. Mao Court. Yeah, it's like uh, yeah, Court. Um, <clears throat> okay, so Chris Depretis, we met. He, he's a film genius and aficionado, and the the leader of the film club in Pleasanton, as well as that's what you do for a living. Is you make film. You just made your first feature length film, yep. which we'll talk about in a second. But the first question that I want to make sure we cover is who do you think will sit on the Iron Throne? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm so excited for this weekend. Yeah, I know. So we're recording this on Thursday, three days three days before the actual launch of the first episode of Season 8, where yeah. we finally get it, which means you have to wait another six weeks to find out, probably. Yeah. Unless they... How crazy would it be if they started off, the Iron Throne person gets it, and the rest of it is just fighting the the night king or something uh, it could it could happen screw with you yeah well, who do you think it'll be okay so actually i i um funny enough i'm i mean i have no idea but i'm somewhat prepared for the question because at work we're doing a um uh um like a, a pool or whatever so everybody has has to guess oh, who's really? gonna die in which episode okay. or who's gonna survive and who's gonna sit on the throne and um while i feel like it would be pretty feel good and somewhat predictable um, I put on Jon Snow on the throne, basically okay. like Aegon Targaryen on the throne, right? Yeah. Um, and I, even though I, inside I kind of don't feel like it'll happen because that would be too much of a win for the audience, and that's not really what the show's about. But on the other hand, from episode one, they've been setting up um, that who he is is important. Yeah. Uh, you know, and and who he's not, of course, is kind of important. But the fact that he is not. But basically, the fact that he is not, you know, Ned Stark's actual son and everything, they, they've been. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah. They've been building that up this whole time, and um, and so the payoff this season has to be something special, right? Yeah. And I, I also don't feel like his, like if they kill him off again, that we have a whole lot of, um, uh, I don't know belief? that that, yeah, or, yeah, exactly. Okay. Not not a lot of belief, or that it has a whole huge effect because it's already happened. And and even if they kill Melisandre before they kill him or or whatever, it's still I don't know his his death is just going to be less tragic the second time. Mm-hmm. So with those kind of story elements, I'm thinking maybe maybe Jon Snow, and that's where I put my five bucks. But um, you know, it could that's be anybody. Who, who do you think it's going to be? Five bucks, huh? I would put I would be, I would double down on that easily. I I think Jon Snow like. I, I imagine something he's gonna have to give up a lot. Like my my thought is he's gonna have to fight, you know, 
Daenerys or they're going to have to get married or something. Right. So something crazy is going to happen between them two. It has to. Right. Um, like there, there has to be ahead. But I've been reflecting on this a lot in terms of the arc of the story. And like there's this view that's so dominant that I think it's blinding everybody. Um, and the view being, you know, what what is going on with this killing off these main characters? And the the reality is that they haven't killed off a main character. Obviously, because the characters that are still alive are the main characters. Okay, they they per, does set up did something brilliant with setting it up as though these were main characters, but they're not really main characters. So Sean Bean is a main main character for season one, right? But they never thought of it in season one. They thought of it in all you know the scope of the whole thing. Okay, so they knew from the get go who was going to be on the Iron Throne. You know, and so obviously, so does uh, George R. R. Martin when he started writing in the '90s. So he knows all this stuff, and you know, part of what he did differently than other fantasy authors, you know, he, that he talks about is making these more fleshed out. You know, like it's like the real world, but with dragons. Right. It's like a medieval times story, but with dragons and some a little bit of magic. Mm-hmm. Not even that much, really. I mean, there's dead people, but they do a good job with the magic. I like yeah. that it's it's really got its limits yeah right? yeah i mean it's not like fireballs and wizards and right. things like that They're, you know they bring a dead guy to life kind of but it's kind of like a frankenstein way almost scientific right and 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 having magic doesn't give you an automatic edge being able to warg into a yeah, that animal yeah. that's that has warg into an animal, you yeah. know it's got limited um yeah like about that one. capabilities or success capabilities there melisandre's weird this you know demon thing that she births yeah it's not like she can just do that and win and even the dragons yeah. aren't enough to just make daenerys invincible yeah which is nice which is a good i think a good use of of all that kind of fantasy stuff although the night king spearing him was really annoying actually not just because of the dragon but i was like and there's this show has not done this too much to me but i was like why didn't he just spear those guys on the rock like if he would have just thrown a spear at them, like thrown spears at them, yeah, and like chased them off or something, he might have been able to kill them or something. I don't know. And it's, oh, that's it's an like, interesting idea. Yeah, like, it's an interesting like, point. Like he took down a fucking dragon. You couldn't, you know, try to take those guys down while they're sitting there for hours. You could have just shot arrows at them or something. I don't know. Uh, that's an interesting like, point. Just sitting there. So it's like one of those moments. Where it's like, man, now that I think about it, it's a little bit off. But anyway, still an amazing scene. Sure. I, I mean, you know, it's just a choice. It's, um, but anyway. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh yeah, so so I think you know I do think Jon Snow has always been the main character, okay, from the the main thing, and it's you know it's like this big epic where he's just not we're seeing his whole life story, we just haven't seen it, and I don't think they're going to kill off the main character. Okay, so in the end, this isn't going to be you know we kill off the main. Character. I don't think you can like unless it's a tragedy where he just dies at the end, sure, which is possible. Um. But it, I don't know. I guess it wouldn't be a killing because it's the story of him becoming, you know, Aegon Targaryen and sure. taking on the king and, and you know, the, the rightful use of power and stuff. Uh, I do think that that's part of a main part of the story. So I don't know. We'll but I'm going I'm going to go for Jon Snow. OK. Daenerys. Like, I think it's going to be more predictable. Uh, with them with as the, a team up? Yeah. I think them as a team up. OK. Um, it would be. Yeah. I mean, just because Daenerys is a Targaryen and they can interbreed and they've said that before and they're yeah you know that's already been part of the whole thing so well, the show's normalized it by yeah, now so like i, I don't Cersei know and... yeah so i don't know what like it'd be weird like why she would say that would be bad in this world right like she loves him 
She didn't know he was a Targaryen. Now he is. That seems to be a good thing because they can they have another reason to team up. Hopefully. Hopefully she doesn't see it as a threat, even though, like, as far as the lineage goes, the throne would be his and not hers. Right? Yeah. Um, and ho- so hopefully she can kind of swallow her pride a little bit. That's a good point. But um, So maybe she goes mad. Maybe. Maybe. I, th- but Because she's the product of incest. Right? Uh, I don't know who her mom is. I don't know who the Mad King's... I don't know who the queen was, actually, now that you think about it. Now that you mention it, I don't... Should have known that. Yeah, but, uh, but I am, I am pumped. I like what you say that, that, I mean, I, I can see him as the main character. I do think that kind of regardless of who dies in this season, it doesn't matter that much anymore. If you die in the last episode, it it really doesn't matter at all. Um, because yeah. you know, in, in previous seasons, the audience, when a character died, the audience actually lost something, right? So if, yeah. if Rob Stark gets killed, that means that you're going to experience, you know, five more seasons of the show. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. And whether a character lives or dies now, we're not experiencing any more of the show. So yeah, except for our vested interest in them winning, right? Like we are vested desire for them to win or whatever right like we want them which is interesting as a show getting people interested in it but i i imagine it's going to be like a harry potter type ending for some reason like where all his friends die or something a lot of his friends die i could see they didn't expect i mean there's a lot of survivors right now i'm surprised at how many people yeah that's what i'm saying like i don't think they kill off as many main characters as people think so i I mean obviously like i said rob but you know and and sean and you know, um, what's her name? Catelyn Stark. Right. And of course there's the bad guys. Um, but who else was a major character? I mean, those are probably, those are the three really. Yeah. I think those are, are probably the, I mean, losing, it's not like we were bummed out to lose Joffrey and it's not like we didn't see it coming to a certain extent. He's a villain though. Totally. Villains are open for killing. Right. And they're open season. Um, but I mean, like, it's not like if like Arya, di- Arya died. Even the brothers that have died, the brother Starks, yeah, are not really Bra- relevant uh, characters. Rickon, yeah, Rickon we, is he the only one who died? I think. So. Well, Rickon and Rob. Well, R- Rob, of Rob. course, Rob was more of a character, but yeah, Rickon was basically nothing. Nothing. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll Poor we'll Rickon. we'll see. I'm, At least on the show. I'm I'm thinking Bran. Hopefully, Bran is playing a bigger part in this last season because they've built up. Yeah, his... they built him up for so much. He better do something. Yeah. It's like what can he? I mean, I guess he could just be a purveyor of knowledge, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. How about, have you heard the brand is the night King stuff? Yeah. I, I haven't looked into it, but I saw, I th- maybe you told me that. Okay. But I saw, like, I looked at the video. I was like, oh, I don't want to, I want to wait till after. I don't want to, cause it could be right. I don't know. Some video legit. has already spoiled everything because basically every single, like, it seems that every single avenue that this show can go, somebody has made a theory. Yeah, about exactly. That, so. so I'm sure somebody's got it right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm gonna make a theory after. Like, I'm gonna do a video after the first episode. Okay, like you know, talking about my thoughts on it more detail. I think, mm-hmm. although not, not like I don't know how people have time to do every like every little detail. Like that is really kind of impressive. And like, what are you doing with your life? Oh, it's crazy. I, they, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, I, I don't know if you saw like two days after the trailer came out, how many the Game of Thrones trailer, how many breakdowns there were of. Of the whole season, all seven seasons. Well, and, and just of the trailer itself, like frame by frame, every oh, single yeah, thing. Yeah. And it wasn't like there were two or three. I mean, you jumped on YouTube, and within two days, people had made, there were dozens of them. And 
some of pretty high quality. People had invested a lot of time and they only had this footage for a couple hours, you know, before they started putting it out. So it's pretty impressive. The internet is pretty, pretty good at basically taking media and, and, you know, immediate criticism of it and everything. It's, yeah, which I, maybe is a good thing, and maybe that could segue into all the movies you watch and like what you do and what you're trying to do with your with your movie. Is like we live in this era um, that's you know it's there's a lot of opportunity I think for media production, mm-hmm. creating good stuff, you know, uh, uh, creating anything. But you know, especially we have a lot of tutors and mentors and things to watch. I mean, it's easy like. You can get a film degree mm-hmm. by watching YouTube videos. Sure. Like I learned every like I went to film school and I did very little actually um learning the technical stuff. I did a little bit of that. My goal was to write and produce, so put everything together and I did a lot of that. Mm-hmm. But afterwards what I needed to learn for myself to do some podcasting, some little video stuff, I just like went on YouTube and learned a lot of it. Which is and, and more some of it was more relevant because the stuff I learned in film school was already outdated. Sure. Right. I mean, you only have so much time. I, I also think that, you know, part of the, um, maybe the problem is that you learn by, I think, depending on the person, but you primarily learn by doing. And um, film school teaches you some, yeah. you, you, you say, I definitely do. Yeah. So, so even at work, like I'll still, if I'm, if I'm, you know, in premiere and I'm doing something and I hit some, I could, couldn't figure this thing out. I still always just jump on YouTube yeah. and like, why is this sequence not nesting or whatever? And, and like, I mean, it's, that's, I think the primary way that, that I have learned things is, is from YouTube. I mean, film school is fun. Yeah. It's good for the networking. I think, I think it's great for the yeah. networking. Yeah. Um, I also think in terms of, uh, you know, I studied, I did film production as opposed to film criticism. Same here. But criticism, I enjoyed the criticism. So basically, like learning how to start to look at movies and break them down. Yeah. Because I was able to carry that on. Might have been better to do that to some degree. Maybe I so. Think. I mean, for me, though, I wanted access to all their equipment. Right. Which is the only the reason I went to film school is I got access to I don't know, half a million dollars worth of equipment or whatever they had in their cage. Yeah. And I used it as much as I humanly could. Like even in the summer when I wasn't taking classes, like I convinced them to let me make a couple movies with their equipment. I even made commercials where I made money through with their equipment. Like I just did, I went like I, I, you know, had the Dean and everybody like, you know, giving me whatever I wanted. I mean, that's, that's kind of what it's all there for. Yeah, you that's know, what it's, it's there for, you know? but I really took advantage of it. That, but that was the main reason it's like I could buy, you know, all this equipment or I could invest in the, um, you know, the degree. Sure. And I did the degree. Yeah. I mean, I dig it. I dig it. I, I I have no regrets about mine, you know, necessarily. I, I, at the same time, I think, um, I mean, I don't know if you ever watched no film school or any of those, um, channels that kind of just try to teach you without, I I don't think it's, uh, I certainly don't think you have to go to film school, No, but I think that it doesn't hurt though. Yeah. I don't think it hurts. I'm not trying to shit on film school. I'm just saying, you know, it's, it, it's, it's a lot out there. It's a great opportunity these days. Yeah. You just made your first film mm-hmm. feature length. Mm-hmm. You've made other films obviously, but sure. And, uh, and at work you're always making videos, but it's not quite the same thing. Although there's so, similar aspects to it, right? At work at your work. Yeah. So I do corporate video. Yeah. And, um, which I do a smaller version of that. So I get it. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I dig it a lot yeah. from a production standpoint. It's, 
it's right there. I mean, you, we're basically using the same equipment and yeah. um, your setups are the same and your coverage is the same and recording audio and doing all this kind of stuff is, is pretty much the same. Yeah. Um, it's just what you're actually shooting is different. Mm-hmm. So it's nice doing corporate videos. Very nice because it keeps me kind of keeps me learning and, um, and the, active yeah. in the field. Yeah. And you know, I'm on a team with a bunch of other folks who, um, who they stay sharp by doing these videos at, at work. And, and then us constantly being together allows us to, uh, kind of get creative and talk, scripts through and, and that kind of stuff that's awesome it's yeah. very yeah it's very yeah. cool um and i think i think if if a group of us were to meet up at the comic book store but but didn't work together if we were just to meet up somewhere like once a month or once even once a week i don't think we'd be as productive as we are being able to see each other on a daily basis um where every day we could come in and just kind of drive these ideas forward until we get to the point where we decide, hey, let's go out and just shoot this, which was basically the case with with Deathblood um, and with a previous with other work that we've done there together or outside of work, but with work folks. Um, well, that, there's a reason why the studio system became the studio system because mm-hmm. you need to get those people in the same area on a regular basis, coming in day after day, doing a job yeah. in the same way. Yeah. Right. And, and shooting ideas, shooting down ideas, you know, round tabling, table reading, all that stuff all together and like building a, you know, a group of people around cinema totally. and around making movies. Yeah. It's, it's the, I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a downside, but, um, uh, but maybe, you know, compared to other art forms, um, the more difficult thing about making movies is that it requires a lot of people. Uh, so I've always so yeah, I agree. And, you know, there's, you know, the auteur theory mm-hmm. of film, which is, if you guys don't know, the auteur theory is essentially who is the author of a film. And, you know, with a book, a novel, it's obvious. It's the writer. Um, it's not the person who designs the cover. I mean, they, they contribute, but they're not the author. Right. But with uh, film, the, there is a question, like, who is the final stamp? Who gets to write their name in the corner, you know, of this painting, essentially? Right. And, you know, most people will say that it's the director. Right. And I've actually, I don't think that's correct. I actually think it's the producer. Ah. I think... And we've gotten away from this because of the this auteur theory, but I I always think like like David Oselznik is my hero. He did, you know, Rebecca. He did uh, King, uh, Gone with the Wind. Yeah, uh, King Kong, and a whole bunch of movies. And like um, one of the interesting things, if you look at the great films, a lot of the greatest films of all time, the director and the producer were either the, were the same person. Often, like Hitchcock, a lot of his best stuff where he produced it mm-hmm. and directed it. And the reason I say that is because producer or, or the or film, because of all the things you just said, there's there's the music, you have to get the right, there's the legal side of it, there's money, you know, paying everybody, running a business, um, as well as the director, you know, who's like the the head uh, designer for your your whatever you're building. Sure. That. It is such a businessman product that I think film is the businessman's art. 
Oh, interesting. I like and that. It, you know, it, cause you need to be a businessman and you need to have, and that's why there's always like a conflict between these artistic directors and these snobby, you know, stupid producers. And I think that this has expanded from what I understand in Hollywood and it's become worse. And, um, you know, I think that's a problem. I don't think that's a good thing that, that, and it's because of this auteur theory. I think that if we would have accepted businessmen, it would have been better. That, 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 I think that that's interesting. Have you heard of the Schreiber theory, which is that no. the, that the screenwriter is the author of the film? Um, I, I would say that I would agree with that more than the director though. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I, um, I tend to lean toward the auteur theory myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but I agree with what you said about um, if, if the writer and, or if the director and producer are the same person, then um, that's more of a slam dunk that you can maybe, maybe credit that individual with authorship with a certain amount of authorship. Uh, um, but I, and I also think it depends on the movie. Certainly, like Selznick was known for being a very hands-on producer. Mm-hmm. Um, but also from my own experience, which is not doing Hollywood movies, which is just doing independent movies. Um, in, in 2014, I did, um, actually I have it. Um, I did this, this movie that ended up being called, um, Navy seals versus demons. You have it? And yeah, I can, I can grab it. It's, I, I've left it in the wrap because, Navy SEALs versus Demons. Yeah, there you go. You, bu- you said you did this? I, dr- I produced it. Uh, you produced this? Yeah, and I bought that at Walmart. I was very psyched. All right. Um, so if you're watching the video, if you're listening, this is a pristine Walmart DVD. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> you could, can you still buy it at Walmart? Uh, probably not. I, okay. think it, I think it had to run for like a short period of time. And- Navy SEALs versus Demons. I mean, that's like Cowboys and Aliens. Yeah, it was It was like kind of going for the same market as like um, Navy mm-hmm. SEALs versus Zombies and, and yeah. stuff like that. And, and um, that's fun. Ba- basically, there's kind of like a, um, a group of, there's like a lot of veterans who get out of the service and then kind of make these movies. And, and, and certainly in nice. the wake of um, like SEAL Team 6 getting yeah. Bin Laden and stuff. There's kind yeah. of um, – there was a movie, Act of Valor, that, uh-huh. that a bunch of – I think they were SEALs. Really? I'm not yeah. 100% sure, but they got together with a bunch of 5Ds and made this movie. And anyway, there's kind of this um, – this and, and this film starred um, you know, a number of different guys who um, were, were in, involved in the service in – different special forces, you know, kind of units and stuff like that. So, um, but anyway, I, so I did not direct that movie. I did not write it. I, um, just produced it and we got about, um, you know, a little bit more than a hundred thousand bucks together to make it. And then a buddy of mine directed it. And, um, I'm the, the, um, I'll let people make their own judgments about the movie itself. Um, it's it's it turned out to be kind of a um kind of a mess but not <laughs> not at like the certainly not at the director's fault there was just sort of a variety of circumstances and and um things that 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 um made caused some caused some difficulty with the production mm-hmm. um but uh you know my job as producer was to budget it out and get the crew hired and get the locations locked in and get 
the props and the motor, you know, there's motorcycles. It's a motorcycle gang. So I had to rent the motorcycles and kind of um, coordinate all of these logistical elements that, mm-hmm. that went into making the movie. But creatively, um, the director made his decisions. And I, I think he did some cool stuff in the movie with with the time that he was given, which was a limited amount of time. But in this particular case, um, I definitely don't feel like I was a Selznick, although Selznick is a different was a different producer, right? Who mm-hmm. who did who was more hands on? In the case of Death Blood, um, which is what we're wrapping up right now, um, you directed. I directed, but I also produced. Yeah. So it's you know it would be interesting. I, I have yet to do just uh, do a project where I'm just directing and somebody else takes all the producing duties, mm-hmm. um, but. Um, you know, certainly it does seem like the director is given a lot of creative responsibility, but I, I, I also, but that's my point is because we've lived in this out theory for so long that that's what's happened, that it's self fulfilling. It shouldn't have been that way. Yeah. Like when you, st- in the beginning, it wasn't that way, but there was a break. And I think this is one of the problems that we've faced with Hollywood because one of the things like it's exact, the problem is exacerbated where, you know, like I was just at an, an, an LA, in LA, a little producers conference, mm-hmm. very small, most, you know, all independent. The, the people on the panel were like, um, they were purchasers for decent sized distribution companies. And it was just producers talking to them about how to, you know, what are they looking for and things like that. But in the crowd, I, you know, I was talking to some producers and, um, you know, or, um, we're talking to some of the writers who also produced, I guess, and what the common view that we all, I think, understand or have heard in the field is that if you submit like a work, you're going to get the stupid notes from executive producers, right? Okay. Like, if you heard of that thing, like the, like, I want it to feel like we haven't earned this or I want this to feel stronger here. Like they give these stupid notes. I was like, how the fuck am I supposed to do that? Okay. What are you talking about? Yeah. Like they get these, have you, you know what I'm talking about? I though? totally know. Yeah. I know yeah, exactly so like, what you're talking about. And, um, you know, a lot of people in this room defended that and they just said that, well, you know, the producers are putting money. It's their career on the line and they're just doing the best they are, but they're just not creative people. Okay. And the, that you said self-fulfilling prophecy. I think that, is the self-fulfilling prophecy. The reason, you know, we've now gone three or four generations from the thirties, the Selznick era, mm-hmm. when that wasn't quite the case, when the big producers, not just Selznick, but a lot of producers did have some say in the creative process. And sure. They were involved a little bit. Um, I think we could have gone the Selznick route or we could have gone the, I guess, independent director route. Mm-hmm. And I think we went the independent director route you know yeah um, and, and that I, my, what i'm saying is i think that was wrong i see yeah that was I, a mistake i, I see what you're um, saying yeah I, I do i do think that probably what happened I, I i agree i think that probably because people were crediting directors more than anything um that just gave directors more power over time uh, but i also think I, I also sympathize a little bit with directors there where let's just say let's say that you're a director and you were happy to have a um uh, share a lot of creative responsibility with the producer, or let's say that you were a director who was willing to submit to the producer and the producer could have been the author of the film. And of course the tradition at the Academy Awards is that it's the producer who wins best picture. Right? Yeah, that's too. Yeah. So let's just say that you were a director who, who did uh, still prefer that. 
Um, but because the O2, the O2 theory has become so popular, um, whether or not you, uh, I, I think that the director feels he or she must take responsibility for the movie because one way or yeah. the other, they're going to get blamed for it. Yeah. Even if they let the producer kind of run mm-hmm. things, the director is going to get blamed. So I think the director feels like a high, I've got to at least, if I make mistakes, at least let them be my own. Well, yeah, no, I know what you're saying, but it may be, it may be too late. Like, cause it would have to be, if it were to happen, like a new, like a new way of making movies. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this would be the time for it to happen because of all the upheaval with Netflix and Hulu and these yeah. people producing totally different things like, um, you know, like Dave, like, like Game of Thrones, the, the two guys are producers. Right. And they're the creators, but they're not the old and and they're the writers, but they're not usually the directors. Very true, and and that's a great example. That you know, and it's amazing vision from them from the very beginning of it. Yeah, no, 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 I think you're totally right. I think that that's that's a huge. It's different from a movie when you have a whole series. The series are not auteur driven. No, no TV show. They can't be. They can't have a director. Um, they, they can't. Everyone. Yeah, they can't have the directors mark like each individual director's mark be really apparent on each episode because there's a branding that they have to subscribe too, to, yeah, yeah. and that branding is de- is determined by the producers yeah, who, who DB Weiss and and Benioff, and Benioff, and they're yeah. better off if they're creative. I mean, but I think that those guys. They seem uh, that's you know I just picked up. Have you seen um, any of the interviews on YouTube with them? Oh yeah, I've seen some interviews. Yeah, I've watched a lot of them lately. And, and I just picked up one of I think David Benioff's books, but I haven't had a chance really? to read he has it a yet. Book. Yeah, um, I guess it makes sense. He's a writer. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, it's from when he was a little bit younger, I guess. Yeah. But uh, but they they both seem very um, smart. Yeah, and this totally could be the way that um, producers kind of retake some of that power. But but in, in uh, another way that but I it's do. It's not even just power. This is, this is what I'm saying. Like, it's, I mean, I understand what you're saying. Like, it's who gets to, like, if there's a conflict between the director on the, the color of the shades, who makes the final, you know, the, the blinds in a scene for production design, who makes the final decision, the yeah. director or the producer. And traditionally, it's going to be the director right. is going to say, no, this is my movie. It needs to be blue, not mm-hmm. red, right? Like, red would give a different feeling you know i and i'm not even saying something like that like you know yes at the end of the day it should be the producer in my view because they're basically in control of the money right where they should be in control of the money but what i'm saying is like i look at it in the realm of business in general yeah where you know so yeah there are really crappy ceos Mm -hmm. i see the producer of a movie as a ceo of that movie right and a good one is someone um who directs like who directs the people to make the best decisions within those sequences sure and then you know he leads them really well and so like there's a there's a book i really recommend this is this is the book that transformed me into thinking this there's two books there's one um letters from david oselznik okay which is just a memo from david oselznik just a collection of his memos and he's like a genius like you just really get into you know like how meticulous he was about choosing people and you know, why he thought the way he did about choosing a different actress versus another one and how he thought long-term to get them. And then another book that I really recommend, which is very small and for filmmakers, I would recommend it in general. It's called Selznick's vision. Okay. And it's about the making of gone with the wind. Okay. And it's not a big book. There's a lot of, you know, pictures of the, the set and everything. And it just goes through like how it was all part of his overall vision. Like he had five directors on that. 
Sure. Right. And it's, and it's the same thing with Game of Thrones, where if you listen to, to Benioff and Weiss, they, you know, when they talk about stuff like one of the big magical moments or, or points of this movie, I guess, or not uh, points, the behind the scenes magic of this is a question they get all the time is like, how do you deal with all the logistics of all the different scenes happening at all different times? Right. right? Cause it's like each season, they, they film the whole season at once. Like they don't do one episode at a time. So they're, they have no, they have like, I, I would love to see like a corkboard of all their notebooks or, or note cards. Right. And they have like, they, they have to assign what director is going to go where the, the actors. So the, everything has to be so pre-planned, mm-hmm. which is why something like this is such a producer art in yeah. the game of Thrones versus what, I, because the problem that I see with some directors is they sometimes can skimp on that pre-planning part and just kind of feel it, right? That's how they want to do it. It's mm-hmm. like, they just want to show up and yeah, show up. They start shooting. It's like, this looks right. We'll put it in post and we'll make, and it's like, no, you yeah. got to Like, this is expensive, dude. Yes. Like this is expensive. You got to plan it out. It's like, I'm not going to start just nailing stuff together. And Oh, I got a house. It's like, no, you got to have a blueprint and yes. design it and look at the material you're going to use. And so, you know, I highly agree with that. I, I think directors would benefit from, and many directors do their do their, their their pre-production work. But I do think some guys just want to show up, and I think that um, that coming from producing, which is I consider myself more of a producer than a director, and and I've produced more projects for other people that they've directed than than um, projects that I've directed. Right, but um, I think. That if directors spent time producing for other people, they would they could become better at well, directing. But I, that's why I think we need to have a business or uh, theory of uh, of film, film. And, and and to like that would be better to have the you know have it viewed as a businessman's art. So the desire would be to work your way into producer rather than to you know like all little boys want to who get into film want to be directors, right? okay? Or the creative people want to be directors, so they all go into directing, and they don't they're not pressured to be into the producer part. That's just something you're taught to deal with. Yeah, right? like when you go to film school, you're taught this is you're gonna have to deal with money. This is how you have to talk to the producer. Right. It's like, it's this whole other world. It's like, no, 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 no. Like, this is how these have to be integrated completely and 100%. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. I The whole reason I had any interest in, in producing to begin with was because I think I was concerned about how what it meant to have to deal with a producer. Right. So not just from a financial perspective, but everything, you know, you, you get an idea, Hey, let's shoot this. But then the producer is the one that brings you back down to earth and says, well, we can't shoot in Pershing square because it requires these three permits (laughs) and these permits take this much time and it costs this much money. And, and they kind of, you know, the producer is kind of popping holes in all of your little desires. I figured I would rather be that guy and learn those things so that one day if I ever had kind of a, a desire to direct, which last summer I did, uh, <laughs> instead of somebody telling me why I couldn't do those things, I could be the one who already knows, hey, this is what you have – if you want this shot, this is what you have to do to get it done. Yeah. And and but, – but I do think – so we're kind of talking about the – director versus the producer or or whether or not the auteur theory um 
you know, is, is fair or not from the, from the perspective of production. Um, but I also think, I think another uh, interesting way to look at it is from the perspective of the consumer. And I might be wrong, but I, I think that the auteur theory came from the French New Wave guys. I think they were the ones who... Well, the words is French, I'm pretty the sure. The word's French, yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's like Godard and Truffaut who, who kind of coined that. They were critics. Yeah. And then they eventually started making their own movies. I, I, I might be wrong, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it came from there. And But the point is, is they weren't... They didn't come up with this from working on set. They came up with it from watching a lot of movies. And what they noticed mm. was that... Um, they could they would they were likely to find more in common between two films directed by the same director than two films say starring the same actor or, or two films even in the same genre or two films in all the ways that we can categorize movies um it's it's interesting how um uh and and so basically when i've considered whether or not i agree with the auteur theory or whether i think that there are other people whose whose hand um can be seen or whose fingerprints can be seen in the movie i think the best way is just to watch a lot of movies so for example you have some guys like tarantino's easy you're not watching but he produces his own stuff too or he's a, he has a hand in the production right yeah i think he does i think lawrence benders is producer for a lot of them i mean i'm sure by by now tarantino you know well, yeah, he has like a hand in it, and his first one he produced, like or Reservoir Dogs, was. I think it's still Lawrence Bender. Okay, I, I could be wrong. So it's a good friend or something. Yeah, yeah, they're buddies. Which is very similar, like if like um, you know, the Matrix, right? Mm -hmm. like the brothers didn't they produce and direct? I think the Wachowskis. Um, the Wachowskis, yeah. Yeah, I think that they did Same produce. Thing with Cohen. Oh, the Coens. Yeah, with the Coens, I mean, it's like. One produces one. They both kind of write. Off, they both right? direct. I mean, they, they work on it. Yeah, yeah, and um, and so that's definitely. I you know it, there are some cases where you see movies that are connected by a, a common screenwriter. Yeah, and you're like, man, this screenwriter's vision is so powerful that he his or her mm -hmm. work is the, those that selection of films are more linked by the writer than they are by the directors, right? Yeah. And I, and I think there's. Uh, a similar case even today can be made for some producers where it's like from the producers of, of this or, or um, you know, Judd Apatow as a director versus a producer. It seems like his whole catalog, even if somebody else technically directed it, mm -hmm. um, has a feel to it, has a feel. And so yeah. maybe sometimes it depends on the job role, but maybe it also just depends on the creative force and it, and it doesn't matter what they're, what title they're they're taking in the end that's a good point a certain individual might just kind of yeah be that i just i just think that it's so film is such a young art mm -hmm. and like you know like when we when i was in film school it felt like an old art because we would study old films yeah but really when you put it in the scope of like painting or sculpture or anything else poetry or, music or yeah and poetry it's like we're talking thousands of years versus less than a hundred. Yeah. I mean, now we're over a hundred. I mean, depending on when you want to, you know, the moment they've op did the first moving camera or, you know, when they start becoming more of an art, like in the teens, like it's still, you know, it's, you know, we could say maybe a hundred years, a little over a hundred years. It's very young. And I think we're just getting into uh, an interesting era where I think the potential that was there at the beginning is now starting to, 
blossom a little bit. And this is what I mean by TV. And, you know, I've said this on the show before, and I've said this to you outside the shows. I think that this new burgeoning TV, like this, the, the breaking bads and the gone with uh, game of Thrones and these, you know, mini series, like there was a Troy series on Netflix, which was like, um, six episodes or eight episodes based on Homer. I didn't, I wasn't a huge fan cause I've read the Iliad and the Odyssey a lot. I've studied it and I'm very interested in it. And I, you know, I was not a hundred percent sold up, but I thought it was not bad. Sure. It was still well, pretty well done. It was on a lower budget, but allowed them to do, you know, like it's a lot easier to make a six hour movie than it was in the past. Like, I don't remember the name of the guy. I'm always forgetting. He did, um, Deer Hunter. What the heck was his name? Michael Cimino? Yeah, Michael Cimino. So I, I read a book in film school. I don't know if they made you read this book too, about the destruction of United Artists Film Studio. No, I didn't read it. So I can't remember the name. I'll put it in the show notes later, but it's actually a really interesting book because it's a it's about Michael Cimino um, and the movie he made after Deer Hunter. Heaven's Gate? Yes. Mm-hmm. That That's the one that destroyed United Artists. Right. And the, 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 which was a big movie studio at that time in the eighties. And it was, anyway, it was one of the, the executive producers who worked on that. And it was his whole trying to deal with this artistic director who had this whole thing. And, you know, he, he had this big vision for it. He want and his vision may have been good. Uh, Chimino's mm-hmm. it may have been an oh, good vision. I don't know, but because of some of the constraints of theater, because they, they, they did have constraints in the terms of the medium mm-hmm. that we don't really have anymore. Like you can do 50, 30 minute episodes if you wanted to. Sure. Right. Like you could, if you, if it broke down like that and people could watch it however they want to, just like they would read a book. Right. Right. And so that to me opens up so many op- options and opportunities. Like it's insane. Like I'm an Ayn Rand fan. And I went, I, you know, I worked at the Iron Institute and I've studied her stuff a lot. And she, you know, I, I don't know how familiar you are with her. Not super familiar. So yeah. she, she was a powerhouse in cinema actually for quite a while, like um, in, in a certain way, like she had a lot of influence in that world. In fact, Chimino, his dream was to make the Fountainhead movie. Okay. That was what he was going to make next until he flopped his career. But anyway, um, she wanted to make a like Atlas Shrugged. If you study the the production history of Atlas Shrugged, which is one of the best selling books of the last two hundred years, okay, I mean it's you know it's it rivals Harry Potter, and um, <laughs> every people have put their name on it. Like you, there's so many producers and directors and writers who've tried it, and they just could not do it. But now I think it can be done. Because you could do it as a miniseries. You could do it as like a 10, you know, it's an 1100 page book. Okay. It's like a lot going on. And you could do it as a, as a miniseries. So my point is that this new medium mm-hmm. has changed everything. And, you know, this may, you know, change also the auteur theory. I hope it does. Sure. And what do you call this new medium? Because I, I, I have a hard time today having figuring out uh, what the distinction is between film and TV anymore. It used to be more clear, right? Like TV used to be broken up by commercials and it was cheaply produced and you had to, this is a good question. Uh, and I, and I'm thinking about it, I mean, keep going, but I'm thinking, well, well, I think, I think that today, first of all, unlike 
in years past and, and more and more since the 80s, but even more and more now, film um, movies aren't open and closed anymore. We have bigger franchises that last for a long time and, and have a lot of different mm-hmm. episodes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in fact... But they're not super connected. Not like Game of Thrones. No, not like Game of Thrones. Definitely like not like Game of Thrones. Avengers is probably the, the biggest connection between that whole world, right? Sure, sure. You see, you have like shared universes like that, cinematic universes, but then you have like Star Wars films. And the Star Wars films are a little bit better at being More movie to movie, open yeah. and closed, I think, but they, do, they are connected. Yeah. Um, or maybe Harry Potter or something like that. Um, lots of franchises, That's though, good. is the idea is that, um, is that, uh, and and as television has has changed, it, another difference used to be that you, when you watch a movie, you go to the theater to see it, right? Now, there are so many movies that you'll only ever see on DVD or streaming on Netflix. And so I'll, I'll watch a movie for the first and only time on HBO Now, and I'll watch Game of Thrones on HBO Now, right? I might watch, you know, a movie that doesn't end in one part because it's it's Rambo and there's like four parts to it or something like that, you know? And, um, and so I, I mean, in our gut, we can still feel that there's a, there is a difference between movies and television and these mini series, but they're starting to blend. And for every, that's a good point. For, it seems like for every rule that we have that we can apply to one, the other medium kind of breaks that rule. And, and the, the example being that, Hey, movies are in, are in, are in movie theaters, but that's not, that's not really the case. Right. And well, the, like Netflix is trying to get into movie theaters and try to get, that was like uh, Steven Spielberg. Then that's kind of like, why I want you in here. You shouldn't be qualified because you're television. Right. He you thinks should they should the, go to the Emmys. The Emmys. Yeah. And, which, which I get from his perspective. Yeah. And Netflix just, saying they're, pl- they're blending. Well, it's, I'm, I'm having a hard time telling the difference and, and, um, uh, you know, Netflix just bought the Egyptian theater um, on Hollywood Boulevard, and and it's I had heard for a while that they were looking at getting into theaters, which is interesting because this goes back to this goes back to the '40s when vertical integration was outlawed, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 now that you know, if Netflix makes their own content and then also but has it was their own for monopoly reasons, and so now the monop like in terms of law. Right. Well, and, and in part of what it did was it would keep independent or new or antitrust, I should say. Yeah, it would keep the the new guys out, right? Because yeah. in, in the old days, if Paramount had their theaters, they are not going to put in, um, you know, a Miramax movie. Of course, that wasn't around yet. But but if Miramax yeah. had been around, it's like, why would we show your movie? Yeah. But um, and so I think it was good that that was broken up because it allowed independent companies to still receive distribution and whatnot mm-hmm. but um if if netflix starts buying theaters and presumably they'll only show their own movies in those theaters right what's to stop us from kind of going back in that in that direction but also um uh what i mean to steven spielberg's concern roma was a netflix movie right and it won um, and we, we've had this discussion at work a number of times and we're, we're, we're not in agreement there about how to, about how to treat this where Roma, um, did have a brief theatrical release. And that's part of the, I think that that's part of the Academy's rule that you have to be in a theater in New York or LA for a couple of weeks, right. Um, in order to qualify for getting, for getting an Oscar. Um, but in my opinion, 
if a movie is released on Netflix, it is not any less of a movie because it didn't ever see the movie theater. And um, a lot of the movies that we enjoy didn't get theatrical distribution. They came out, they were straight to video, right? And regardless of whether or not movies had theatrical distribution a long time ago, I never saw the majority of the movies that I've seen, I haven't seen in the theater, but I still appreciate them as films, right? So it, it seems maybe arbitrary to say that it's only a movie or, you know, in, in Steven Spielberg's opinion, it only counts. It could only be considered for the award if it's, if it's been inside of a theater. And I appreciate trying to protect the theater business and I love the theater experience, but I just don't think it is the, I don't think it's the qualifier for whether or not something is a, is a movie. And to go further down the line, you know, Game of Thrones does win Emmys, but um, it's it's oftentimes better produced, better written than yeah. than a lot of movies. What's what's to say that it's it it just has too many episodes to be considered a a movie? Because I've heard the I've heard Weiss or Benioff describe it as basically their seventy two their, their yeah their seventy two hour movie. It's a ten hour movie, yeah, yeah, which I agree with. Yeah, I mean, we need new terminology. I don't, you know, I off the, you know, I don't, off the top of my head, I can't come up with a new word for this. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I think you're right. There's, it's the same, you know, it's, it's blending mm -hmm. television. There is a huge marked difference between the quality in, of television versus movies for the, you know, since television came out. Yeah. It's always, you know, that's always been a big difference. Probably until Just, Sopranos, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, just until the last 10, 15, 20 years, maybe. Um, and really now, like you're saying with Game of Thrones, I mean, it's like you have no idea. Like if I were to just show an, the first episode of Game of Thrones next to um, a movie that you, you know, like a Hollywood movie, people would be like, I have no, like, which one, like which one was a movie? Right. I mean, you know, if you saw them both on a, you know, even if you saw them both on a big screen, you probably wouldn't be able to tell the difference. No. Um, or very little. I mean, is it's, it runtime? Yeah, is I that mean, is that the is that yeah, what it well, is? Well, let's that, say you did the first two episodes or something, right? Like boom, oh, yeah, there, yeah, you're there. Yeah, it's like you're right there. But so I, I like I said, I think we need new terminology. Like we, I don't um, like they're they're they they're basically the same now and going forward. So it's like award shows. I think should blend together and just not have an Emmys and an Oscar separate. Sure. One, nobody even cares about Oscars that much anymore, except for diehard you know they've really shot themselves in the ass yeah. in the last couple of years yeah i agree getting super political and stuff like unless you're diehard and i've like i've watched all of them until this year i just like i am just got done with me too it. this is my first care. year where i dropped it i just didn't care and i was like and i they have to know and see the numbers are dropping yeah and they've they've known that for a while the numbers you know they they pretend like it's still a billion people it's like i doubt that but a billion people they used to say it was a billion people that would watch the oscars as um, what I was told, but, but anyway, but so my point is that we have this new world. Mm -hmm. We have this new thing opening up, you know, there's the TV movies, really, it's just like visual literature and we should look at it. I think it's not, that's not a good term. We need some term that conveys visual stories. These are, these are moving stories, you know, Mosties, I don't know. I'm not going to come up with a word. It's going to suck. But you know, it's it's because film isn't a good terminology anyway either. Because none of them are shot on film either. Anyway, 
Sure. So it's not film. Movies come from moving pictures, right? which makes sense. So I think we need a term that conveys moving stories of some sort or, or you know, story, picture, moving, that uh, conveys all of that in a, in a single word or something like that. Yeah. I mean, I know that we, we, the word show is usually considered we we think of tv shows but it's like you go to a show on broadway you see a show and yeah and you go to a showing of a movie and it's That's like in, in many ways everything is a show because yeah. they're showing you something or you're you're going and you're um experiencing this spectacle right yeah whether it's a 20 minute episode of big bang theory that's a show or whether you're seeing the new star wars film you're going to this big show you know and and yeah, it's probably semantics, really, uh, to, or or maybe to us it's semantics, but 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 I guess it is more because if they're trying to disqualify one thing, well, I think semantics is important. Though. Yeah, totally. Like I think, it, like how it enters into our terminology is important, not just for filmmakers, but for ordinary people. I mean, the, uh, only just because it's art, and I think that's what we should be promoting as the quality goes up. Mm-hmm. You know. The, there was a there was a very limited amount of things you could do with a two hour movie, and now we don't have that limitation. Yeah. So, and we're now starting to see people like actors and producers and directors who are acknowledging you know what they call the television, which they used to say was beneath them. Right. Now they're starting to say, well, you know, there's some good things, and you'll see like a um, a Jake Gyllenhaal does a Netflix made for Netflix movie. Yeah. Right. And, um, which wasn't a bad movie. I can't remember the name, but it was him as an art critic. Okay. I didn't um, see it, but yeah, it just came out not so long ago. It wasn't bad. And, um, you know, but the, the, he did it with the same guy that did, um, uh, or he's the, he's, Fake or he's he's getting to crime scenes. Nightcrawler. Yeah. So that's so, is that Tony Gilroy? Is I that the guy so, yeah. who did it? I he think it. so. It's the same guy who did Nightcrawler. Did this one? Okay. Did um, the art one? It's 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 a weird movie, but it's interesting. What what do you think of Nightcrawler? Yeah, I liked it. it was the same thing. Weird movie, but interesting. Yeah, it's cool. Like the cool. extremes that people like that would go to, and the kind of character that would do something is a little off in the head. Yeah, you know, um, I, I think it's kind of as close as we get to film noir today. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah. I never thought of it like film noir, but yeah, I guess that's true. It reminded me a little. Did you see Drive? Yes. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of Drive. They kind of felt like a good. You could pair those two movies. That was awesome. Yeah. 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 I'm. I'm. I'm a fan. But. So yeah. So I mean, I just think we needed. You know, I don't. I don't know if we need to beat it to a dead horse, or if there's anything else to beat a dead horse. I don't know if there's. That's just my take. Is that we need a new, going forward, there needs to be something new in this world, where it can't be. Movies are the high-end stuff that all the money goes into. Television isn't. Right. I think, for me, it's all about story and literature, mm-hmm. and you know, have giving us something to contemplate. You know, like what people are doing. What you're saying about Game of Thrones earlier, where people are, you know, frame by frame taking everything apart. They have all these theories. What's going on? I think that's what you do with great literature. Mm-hmm. Like when you're looking at, you know, a a book like gone with the wind let's say i mean you if you're you know if this if you have no movies and you're really into literature you can look at all the different you could discuss every aspect of it all the time right yeah or, or through you know over and over again yeah. you, you know look at it in 10 years and see it in a different way yeah or or to kill a mockingbird which was our movie and book you know or just the movie yeah that we did but you know the book you know came up a lot too uh, so yeah i just think that that's where we are
Yeah. 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 We'll see, we'll see how it, where it all settles, yeah. you know? And of course we didn't even mention all of the stuff that is beneath these things, like every, you know, YouTube, like sort YouTube of web video, series yeah, yeah. and yeah, the stuff that's there. And, and, um, interestingly, I, I spend a lot of my time. I can easily spend two hours in a day, um, auto playing videos on Facebook or Instagram and and that's the same length that I would spend watching two episodes of Game of Thrones or or What's a an movie. example of that of, of like a sh- like you're saying a show? Yeah, so some of them are a little bit better produced. Like there's one called um, Zach Morris's Trash, and basically oh, it, that one hurts my. I've seen a couple of those. Sure, there's there's that or but but most. Wait, wait, so tell me about that real quick before you tell me. The, so that one particular. So only because it pops up in my feed actually. No, but why? No, I want to actually pick on that for a second. Yeah. Like, like separate from what you're saying, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah please. So Zach Morris is trash. Uh-huh. I've seen, I think, two episodes. And he's only trying to be funny, right? Like, there, it's not, he's not seriously saying Zach Morris is trash. I think it's a, I think it's, yeah, a joke where, where, and I've, and I've seen kind of this style of humor in other places where, okay. um, you know, this is saved by the bell, right? It's a little bit yeah. before my, but, um, How old are you? Uh, I was born in 88. I'm okay. 30. Okay. So I'm 33. It's slightly before my time, but it's still around my time. Yeah. I, I, mean, I, I saw, watched it growing up. I, I, I saw, it. yeah, I saw some episodes or whatever, but I, I do see this, this kind of humor where, I mean, in the case of Saved by the Bell, you're not, it is a, um, the world they're creating, they're not trying to say this is really what the world is like and, and you're not supposed to react to it like it's real life. It, it's a show and it's kind of a fantasy, right? And similar to, um, uh, Alejandro and I have been, Going back and reviewing The Simpsons and your wife, but yeah, my wife, oh, yep. yeah, yeah, my wife, Alejandra. And we, uh, as we're going through The Simpsons, you're not meant to, to, um, uh, judge the characters by real world standards. You're just meant to judge them in the context of the show, The Simpsons, right? So yeah. you kind of love Homer, but in real life, if Homer was. Well, yeah, he like strangles his child. He'd be a terrible person, <laughs> you right? Can't strangle your kids. So, so in well, that in that particular case in that show, it seems like he's he kind of plays it very yes, uh, yeah. Zach Morris is trash. He kind of the um, the narrator plays it very straight, but but talks about what's going on in the show as if we're as if we're supposed to look at it from a real life lens. Um, but it, that's a little bit of a bad example of the kind of content that I'm talking about only because it's a little bit better produced. Yeah, it's well, well done. Okay. Well, we can change the subject. I decided, cause like what I was trying to say about save the, yeah, what, what's your thought trash, on trash though is like, I, I, it's been so long since I've seen it. So I, I, he makes me question the show too. Like I, you know, there was one that I saw recently, Zach Morris's trash where he's supposedly like making fun of a, a fat girl or something like that. Zach Morris is. Yeah. Zach Morris. Uh-huh. And you know, like he, there, and there was, I remember this episode. Um, and for me, th- what they did was they chose only the moments when Zach Morris was trash. And the whole point of the episode was that he came to realize something at the end and became a light, slightly bit better person. Yeah. Which is the whole point of the show. And it's like, but you're only showing him as yeah he's the trash person that's the whole point is he's mean to this fat girl he's not and then he takes her to prom or whatever at the end of the the thing because he realized and he doesn't care that people look at them while he's dancing with with this girl um and they made fun of that whole thing i was like but that's growth like you're making fun of 
you know, his growth. Yeah, that, I, I'm, that's, ho- I'm that's hoping what's it's bothering me. It's yeah, like, I, I, I see what I you're saying. Punch that guy in the face. Yeah. It's like, I, I, at the I, end, he should have said, "Ah, oh, I'm just kidding." Of course, Zach Morris learned something, and he's a, you know, he's he's not the, a good guy, but he's better than he was. Sure. I, like I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that he's, uh, I'm hoping that it's pure comedy, and yeah, he's not. It's not actual criticism. But he does it so straight. I he can't tell. he does it very straight. That's um, the problem. But I think, uh, I think, you know. And also, I could start naming things that nobody's ever heard of because that's what YouTube and Facebook and these Instagram videos are. But like, Rucka uh, Rucka, yeah, or Rucka Rucka Ali, yeah, or uh, I, I, there's this guy Ed Bassmaster who just shoots his own videos. Or there's these Aussie Man reviews. Aussie Man reviews. That guy's hysterical. <laughs> He's hilarious. Yeah, he started doing real interviews with people. Did he really? Yeah, I saw him do Game of Thrones stuff. He's a pretty good interviewer. Oh, I, I yeah, uh, like, look at the Aussie Man interviews of Game of Thrones. Okay. He's pretty fun. He is very funny, but stuff like that where it's, and, and actually when I get into those threads and I'm watching those videos, when I come across a video that, that looks like it was shot with where, where it's got multiple camera angles and it looks like the filmmakers actually shot coverage. I, I, I skip it Mm. or I swap, you know, basically swipe up because no, because I, I don't want something produced in those videos. I'm looking for the cell phone footage or I'm looking for the vine, <clears throat> the vine type videos, videos okay. that are as, as, um, th- this doesn't mean I don't want creativity. It doesn't mean I don't want a story, but I do want that authenticity. Exactly. That Real. feeling of authenticity. Yeah, it's not overproduced. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, I bring it up in general because I spend as much time watching that type of content as I would w- spend watching one movie. Um, and, and I'll do it pretty yeah. regularly and it's, and it's kind of addicting and it's, it can be addicting. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I feel like it's, it's still part of the same. Um, I, I think it's still on the same scale. It's f- certainly from a production standpoint, it's way on the other end yeah. um, of, of versus versus the next thing. But, um, but I still feel like it's, it's out there with, um, you know, I don't. Uh, yeah, maybe it's not something that you that you would have like an Oscar for the best Vine clip, and I don't know how you dig through everything like that. But um, no, because I mean, well, those aren't. So those would have to be different categories because it's not a fictional story, right? It would have to be a. It would exactly. So it'd have to be like, a different, uh, a whole different category. But, I mean, they have stories on YouTube, of course. They have YouTube originals. They do have that. People do their webisodes. Yeah. And stuff. So I mean, I I do think there's a purpose for differentiating between different types of media like or different types of um uses of the camera and microphone right like podcasts are different yes than, than a story like what we're doing now is just putting up you know do, having a long-form conversation like that's why i do long-form conversation versus interviews sure as i think there's a market for that uh more than the interview i think the interview has been fading a little bit unless you're really good at it sure but long form conversation there's i mean like just shows like joe rogan which are massive yeah like he gets like a billion downloads a year yeah that's 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 like maybe the main and there well there's like dave rubin i think that's i think joe rogan's the main one that i watch though i think oh for you yeah 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 yeah. i mean there's what i'm saying is there's a market for Mm -hmm. intellectual discourse yeah on a you know about like we've been talking for like an hour or how long is this going so uh, like an hour almost about like the film auteur theory for like 30 40 minutes sure like that's not something we would do in a conversation like or or, uh, excuse me in an interview 
Right. I might ask your thought. You'd give me a snippet of something and we move on. Very true. Right. So um, if we're talking about the world expanding, that there's a lot of different things you can do. Like the world has expanded for because of this revolutionary, you know, um, medium. Yeah. And and um, the the technological medium I think was a, really it really is the the fiber optics like the infrastructure and the iPhone. I think the iPhone and the laptop have been the thing that have really, you know, changed everything. Because like what the iPhone did was made, especially the iPhone, is it made all this money go into infrastructure for the internet mm-hmm. and for like all these websites that you could access through your iPhone. Right. Even if you're going to watch them on a big screen at your house, right? You could watch a movie here, but now billions of dollars have gone into Google, which has been able to grow because. Two billion people have an iPhone in their pocket, sure, and they use it all the time. Same thing with Facebook. So Facebook has access to billions of dollars, and you know, same like Netflix was able to build into not the i. I mean, you can watch stuff on the iPhone, which people do, or on their iPads. But I just think like that infrastructure that went into it, the money, the billions and billions of dollars that goes into getting us all internet and, and faster fiber optic, you know, Wi-Fi and, and, um, um, and you know, cell tower usage mm-hmm. allows the internet to rival cable and, you know, versus, because distribution is really important in all of this, obviously. Yeah. And theaters had a, their own difficulty with distribution, which was limitations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you had to fit all the people in a town into one theater and then you did a, you know, multiplex and maybe open up another theater for Gru. But now we can all just do it in our own homes. Yeah. Just like a book. We can, I mean, we could watch it on our iPads on a plane. Well, and, and the, the, and the creator really can just good. upload, you know, it, so I don't have to yeah, go to somebody yeah. and say, hey, will you show my movie? I can just, yeah. if, I, if worst case scenario, I could just upload it and anybody can watch it, you know. Which is what I said you should do with Death Blood. That's right. Your movie. That's right. Yeah, put on, on uh, and get, like, learn the distribution on your own mm-hmm. and then build up to... You know, if it if it moves into other things, into a wider distribution, totally. I think that's the future for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to show you Death Blood once it gets into a you know. A How better... much longer do you have until it's? Well, um, it's a little bit hard to say, but um, uh, my um, partner in the project, he's the director of photography and. Um, post-production supervisor and he actually wore many hats his name is darwin clark and actually you've met dar um yeah we went to sidetrack once um anyway uh our goal is to bar yeah okay if we have it done by the end of this june 2019 okay then um then we'll have gone from um pre-production to delivery in 18 months um which is which would be nice yeah. for the sales pitch. Yeah. Um, and if if I include development, it took a couple months to write the script, three months, two months. You wrote it? Yeah. Um, but I'm not including... What's it about? Tell, tell everyone what it's about. Sure. So it's um, it's basically... I, there's a kind of a, um, a, a external premise, and then there's the internal premise of the movie. Mm-hmm. But um, it's mm-hmm. it's it pays homage to... like. B movies, eighties horror, sci-fi type of type of stuff, um, and uh, and 
It's the La La Land of B movie horrors. Sort of like that, yeah. <laughs> and and um and but to really kind of drive the point home that that we're going for B movies, it's not just a, a B movie or a horror film from the eighties, but like one of their sequels, right? Yeah. So the movie's actually called Death Blood Four. And Although there's not a one, two, three. There's not. So yeah. it'll open up with trailers reminding us of what happened in one, two, and three. And then what happens in four is the movie. And and really it's pretty open and closed. There's not a whole lot that the audience is missing out on, but but um I am very interested in, in movie sequels and movie franchises in particular. And so this is um um specifically kind of paying homage to them. So that's that's kind of the external premise of 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 the project and then um the movie itself um picks up where this um this in a previous film a mad scientist had created these nano robots that um get inside of your bloodstream and multiply and take over your body and when they do um the uh scientist with a remote control is able to control you and control your actions and make you do whatever he wants mm-hmm. um when there's not a control though they just drive you crazy and turn you into like a slasher killer okay so um and so that's these nano robots that's what the death blood is and then um and then in order to defeat the death blood we have our lead character um who is played by Testa Predis, my little sister and um and uh she is the only person in this town she's the descendant of the previous hero of the other films and she's the only person in this town with this lifeblood and so she has this special sword that um has like IVs that go into her blood and it kind of uh, pumps her blood out onto the sword so then when she fights the nano robots she's basically like killing um killing the nano robots not just killing the host but like defeating the death blood itself and um what was used for a cgi did you do cgi yourself no we we, we went practical which was which was important to us because we're doing an 80s so what did the the nano robots look like uh so so we have a cool shot um and we only actually have to see the um the death blood once and then after that it's just within the host of you know it's within the actor well, so, so who is she fighting off so she fights um for example scary larry is has been also oh, it's people it's people okay who yeah. are infected i thought she was fighting off the robots no so uh, so they're people who are who who've been taken over by this robo- this nano robotic virus but we do see the nano robots at the beginning and we did kind of a gag with um some meat and some little mechanical things and some fake blood okay. to create like a pulsating moving little guy you know little creature thing yeah. that 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 um that she has to defeat and then um kind of in in the fashion of um of so i don't know if you're familiar with like the tremors movies for yeah. example so you know how each movie it kind of gets a little more absurd and they have to up the stakes they have to like make they do that all the time with the sequels exactly yeah all the time with sequels so in this one the idea is that in order to up the I know stakes what you did last summer yeah i really know uh-huh don't forget yeah i'm here <laughs> and, and whatever the <laughs> movie like, is it's like you have to make it what you have to make it crazier right yeah, yeah. so in this one um bigfoot is is involved and they Got bigfoot okay. becomes um infected with it so now you're not just fighting off bad guys you're fighting off bigfoot. you're fighting off death blood bigfoot yeah and um we also have um 
an alien from outer space who's got to come down and help her um, on this mission because her mom, who's the original fighter, is fighting death blood on a different planet right now. And um, and we've got, you know, we, we tried to hit as many of the cliches from these old horror and sci-fi movies as we could. Hmm. So um, we've got the the one friend who's like a brilliant inventor and who could just invent stuff kind of like um, you ever seen the Goonies? Yeah. You know, you know, data, the kid yeah. um, from Temple of Doom who like can just the invent. Asian kid. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. can just invent all this stuff. So we have a character who does that. And um, and then we've got a couple different representations of the police. We have like our good cop who's like a good detective who's by the book and trying to solve crimes and stuff. But we also have the evil police chief who's just trying to take advantage of the situation. And he's like a bad guy and, you know, kind of the um, he's the authority that the kids you know, don't like and, and whatnot. So that's basically, that's the movie. Um, it's got a talking television set in it that, that was invented by the inventor and, and all sorts of different weird little sci-fi things. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like 90 minutes. And I'd say for the, um, for anybody who's listening, uh, at this point, if I could plug the Instagram, that's sure. the, that's the, that's the main thing that, um, for promotion, for promotion yeah, at this sure. point, um, the and I I just want to make sure that I have the the name. Um, well, I'll also like put it in the show notes. Yeah. So just it's, it's just Death Blood and the number four, no de- underscores. De- death Blood Four. Yeah. And that kind of that'll show four, the not IV. Yeah. Yep. Correct. Yeah. Number the number four and and um and then you know however we ultimately distribute whether it's Amazon or whatever we do we will communicate through that channel through mm. through Instagram. Um, to promote, uh, to promote wherever it ends up living. But, um, but the, I mean, cast and crew are super incredible. Um, a bunch of people came together and, and cast and crew and also locations, a bunch of people just came together and helped us get this thing done for basically no money. Mm. And, um, and it was ultimately a practice in going through the motions of, of all the things that you have to do to make a movie, mm-hmm. just doing it without finances, you know. And yeah. the, the movie, the the production quality reflects that. You can see that it's low budget, but um, but f- we intentionally wrote the story to um, f- uh, to allow that to be acceptable. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's a B movie, and and it's meant to be a B movie. So um, the fact that it is made cheaply works in its favor, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, totally. That's cool. So you guys just um, you made that. It'd be done hopefully in June. That's You're the... going to try to sell it to a, a company, a producer, or a distribution channel or something. Right? Yeah. Well, so so um, we the main our main goal is to get financing for the next project. Um, to be able to take this and use this and say, look, we were able to get this all the way finished and get all of this production value into it still with no money and all that kind of stuff. So look what we could do with $20 million. Exactly. Yeah. So if you, so, Hey, if you give us a quarter of a million yeah. that we could, this is what we, what we can do. And, and basically to show that we understand, um, technique and we understand shot coverage and we understand yeah. all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, we will, you know, good chance that death blood itself ends up just living on like Amazon where um where people can just rent it yeah right um that's where they all end up anyway 
Yeah. <laughs> but we'd also like to showcase it in appropriate horror and sci-fi film festivals. And this yeah. would be a good way of meeting the producers and stuff that yeah, could yeah, yeah. Uh, potentially finance the next movie. Um, and, and so that, you know, those outcomes would be ideal and everything, but I, I do, um, and, and it's important to have a goal when you set out, I think, to make a movie. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I also think it's important to understand that we, um, su- how we define success on this project, um, kind of happened daily where we didn't on the first day say, we're going to make something that we're going to sell for this much or that we're going to make this much money with. The real goal was we just wanted to make a movie. And so uh-huh. every single day that we're on set shooting and every single day that we're in the editing bay, getting everything cut together. And when we're casting every one of those days was a win. And that is ultimately what we want to do. And, and ideally next time we'd have money to do it. Mm -hmm. But if we didn't, we'd continue to do the same thing. And if, um, if each one of these movies just disappeared into the, um, you know, into the sea of media where there's just so much stuff, the, the point isn't to, the point isn't an award or even a dollar amount or anything like that. But really the point is just to create. Let me, let me ask you this then. So, your first initial your your initial thought was to just create something right, mm-hmm. and finish the movie. Yeah. Now you're thinking of distribution and sales, so you could do another movie. Well, I, I think that um, distribution and sales, or or festivaling and all that kind of stuff, was always a part of it. It just wasn't the primary goal. In, in other words, I I think it, w- it was important from the beginning to say, well, hey, we want to we do want to go down this path, me. and it, and that knowing that affected a lot of our choices. For example, we didn't, um, we couldn't afford to shoot with, um, the the actors union. Right. Um, but we still had some actors who were SAG who were willing to be a part of the movie anyway. And they were very talented people, but knowing that we wanted to, that knowing we wanted that we didn't, we wanted to have the option later on to do something with the movie um, because it's still a lot of our hard work. And so we specifically didn't cast union people because we didn't want to get in trouble down the road. Right. Yeah. Um, similarly, we've made it a point to avoid showing branding or, you know, we only use music that, that we have licenses to, or that we created for the film and, and all of that kind of stuff. We basically practiced making the movie, um, so that we can sell it and whether or not we do it is less the point, but we did we we did um i i think that festivaling it or or distributing it wasn't an afterthought it just wasn't it's just not the primary goal or or it's it's not the only it's not the only point in making the movie making the movie was the point of making the movie just doing it daily i remember when we showed it to our composer and i had darwin in here and jake russo who's our composer and we showed him a, a cut of the movie and we like ordered pizza and like that night when we're watching it and then talking, pausing it and talking about what kind of music should go here. It's like, um, it's nights like those. That's, that's why you would make the movie anyway, so that you can experience that night. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I, I, yes, a hundred percent. What I'm, what I'm trying to ask is, so what you were just telling me is that you made it to make it, but you, want you know like that was the main purpose mm-hmm. distribution is a nice secondary if it happens yes right like but you you enjoyed the process totally yeah and it was about the process but but just because 
but we still I still feel um for everybody's work, for everything that everybody did, um we still I, I do think we have the responsibility to take yeah. take it as far as we can. Um well, but I don't see I mean I already see you know, I think the ultimate success is finishing the movie. Um and I think that's the most important thing. Finishing it and being able to hand it out to the cast and crew is the most important thing. But of course if we yeah, if we get distribution that's that's huge. That would be a huge deal for us. Yeah, but what I'm trying to get at is so yeah, I get that. Like you're again, I think you're saying you want to distribute it would be great. Mm-hmm. If you could sell it, excellent. Mm-hmm. If not, it you've accomplished what you want to accomplish. Right. Which is I think it makes sense. I think it's a good attitude for the most part, but I'm trying to talk about the next movie uh. and like what you're trying to do with it as your career. Sure. Um cuz the the question I have, it's like Death Blood 4 sounds fun, enjoyable, but is it something that can be distributed because of the nature of it being what it is? Sure. Like, does it have, is it in a market? So then maybe not, maybe this is like, you you know, you came up with it as a good idea. It's fun. You enjoyed it. You got better as producers and directors and writers. Mm-hmm. Maybe you do distribute it to small, very small niche that is the same as you that enjoys those the horror, horror group, yeah. films and they, they get it. But excuse me, but what, what I'm saying is the next one, when you, if you want to do something a little bit bigger, mm-hmm. would you choose a wider market ahead of time? So like, would you do something that's not that it's its own original product, but not a two, three, four, like, or a, an homage, but it's just a story. Yes. Okay. And- yeah, I totally would, and I and I think also um, legs falling asleep with this. <laughs> oh, sorry. That's no, all right. Not not to knock Death Blood, but I would write something better also, and and I think I'd put some well, more time saying, into everyone it. Everyone should be every new story should be better than the last. Oh yeah, like everything be- I work on is the best thing until I'm done, then it sucks. Yeah. For me, like for my stuff, I'm like, oh, I read my old stuff like. Compared to what, like what I'm doing now, sure. I think it's way I'm way better now. Yeah, and I think hopefully in ten years I'll be better. If that's not the case, the fuck you doing? I agree. Right? Yeah, that's and, the point of that. And I agree with your or or to answer your question, it's yes. I, I think the next thing, and I think specifically with Death Blood, I was hesitant to write something that was too personal or that was too serious or that I took too seriously because mm-hmm. um, I certainly wanted the freedom to make mistakes which i made a lot of mistakes and and if it was a if if i had written some content that maybe had more value as a script Mm -hmm. but then just kind of butchered it in in my process as as a during production um which i think again i think cast and crew came together and did amazing things but um I lack a lot of experience or, or certainly at the beginning of the project, I lacked a lot of experience as a director. And so I know that I, um, I felt okay making mistakes on death blood because it was death blood. And that's kind of, that was kind of my attitude. Ne- the next project, um, I will feel more confident going into that project mm-hmm. and, um, and would feel better about, uh, shooting something that, Maybe I care a little bit more about. Not to say I didn't care about Death Blood, but something that is, um, yeah, maybe a little bit more um, accessible to a wider audience, and mm-hmm. and um, and definitely something that I um, 
Does that make sense? Does that kind of well, answer? Like, I think the way you should phrase it for yourself is something that you want to make money from at the beginning. Like mm-hmm. this, like, like you would right now, your measurement of failure is zero. Like there is no way to fail unless, unless we don't deliver, unless we don't deliver the movie, yeah. which isn't enough for an expensive product, like a film sure. or a movie, Yeah, which is what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So you're I right. Think the next thing should be something that is good and makes money. Uh, yeah. And, you know, and like, certainly if we, if we were to raise money, we would have that pressure to, yeah, to make money. That's and, what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's like that's the next stage. Yeah, and career. on Deathblood, there were some instances where we were offered some money—not a, not a high amount, but enough that probably would have covered the cost that I spent to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't want—I didn't want that pressure on this, yeah. you know. But yeah, no, totally. Film is a business, and and um, like long term, the ultimate goal is to even if we're still making not the most expensive movies, we would love for whoever invests in them to get a return on their investment so that I could continue to make movies. And the difference between making movies with and without money is pretty huge, you know? So, oh, yeah. so yeah, I, I think going into it and saying, Hey, just working with actors. Yeah. Professional. I mean, you got to anyway, but you know, if you could pay, it's a totally different thing. Well, you did pay them and uh, oh, it's totally, I mean, but, but so I'm, I, what I'm saying is, um, well, I, I guess that's it. Like this, you know, if you were to get that two hundred fifty thousand dollars next time, mm-hmm. you know, that, I was just curious, like how you're thinking about that next phase yeah. of the career and getting funding, dealing with that type of pressure. Yeah. So this one, sure, you didn't want pressure on it. That's fine. The next one, you know, like the the pressure's on. Yes. There's um, a quote. I think it was Walt Disney who said it. Okay. Might have been somebody else, but. Pretty sure it was Walt Disney, some person who made films Mm -hmm. of some sort. And he said, um, I think it was like in being accused of selling out for like some of the stuff he was doing. Okay. Right. Like it wasn't pure art or something like that. I don't know. And he he said um, something like, you know, I make money so that I can make movies. Like that's the whole point, which you kind of alluded to. So the more money you can make, the more mo- movies you can make. Sure. Right, obviously. This is the benefit of a studio is that you have, if you're making, although we don't really have the studio system much anymore. I mean, I, not, I think it might be there a little bit, but not like it was. Sure, not in the same way. You're not busting them out you know, with the same people and lot, yada, yada. Yeah. But what my, my point is that you get this, um, you know, you now have this opportunity to make a movie. If this one makes money, if you do even five, ten, twenty thousand dollars, that's a huge win. Sure. For a no budget movie. Yeah. Right. And then if you were to get a hundred or more, two hundred for the next one, and then you know, think about how can I make money from that get, mm-hmm. make a good story. So I think that is the challenge because like we were talking about the auteur theory, and there's this view that we have to either either make a good movie or tell you know, sell it. Right. Or sell something. Right. And and how does how do they put it in uh, Hollywood? Like one for them, one for you, or whatever. Uh, like that kind of idea. Yeah. And and I think that is all the wrong mentality, though. Like it, it, that leads to this separation of the money and the product. Sure. And it, it, within the talent and the field, it's, it's saying this is an example of that people saying, "Hey, money's not really important. We shouldn't think about that, or we we do we do because we have to. It's a necessary evil." That's one way to think about it. It's a necessary evil 
rather than a necessary good like or a good thing right because that's just reality mm -hmm. right and so if you having that reality of like let's think about the money from the beginning mm -hmm. and like how can we tell the story we want and make a little bit of money yeah I think that's the key. Yeah. No, I, I, I don't for disagree the, with for that. For the businessman's art. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, you don't go into a, um, like, even if you want to create a product just because you want to create it, you want to make money with it. Like, you know, Steve Jobs wanted to create his iPhone. Yeah. But he also wanted to make a lot of money. Right. And he turned down opportunities to make other products that that might have made some money but it wouldn't have been his product like he could have done an ipad way like years before the iphone and like an ebook reader before the amazon kindle but he turned that down hmm. um and he you know he he turned on a lot of opportunities to make products like that and again the reason was he wanted to have the match between good money good product yeah and i think that's the key with good movies is good money, good product, yeah. good, good art or yeah, good art, good money. Yeah. No, I, I think that makes sense. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, yeah, I totally think that makes a lot. And, and, um, you know, hopefully we learn from this movie what the, what it looks like, how, how we move into the, you know, sort of, gone. I'm still here with you. No, no, you're all, you're all good. So yeah, sorry. This, no, it's, it's just my big fat legs. I'm just gonna go like this. You're still in the frame. That's what. That's a. There we go. I'm just gonna lay down. There we go. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. there's no earthquake because those. Uh... What? No, you should be good. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Okay. But uh, talk but, to me. Chris. No, I'm. I'm definitely with you. I'm definitely with you on that. Okay. Uh. So and and you know my plan is to once this is knocked out, um, get a couple scripts together. Okay. I got a script. Yeah, I'm working on a script. Yeah, <laughs> if you want one? I'm, I'm, I'll be done with it. Yeah, it, my, well, my plan is to get a couple of scripts together. Maybe have some pitch packages on them. Put you know, get some budget breakdowns and maybe some um, like style frame type things. Some some. Um, so a couple of your scripts you've written. I'm, I need. I'm, I'm going to need to write. Okay. Yeah. How long does it take you to write a script? Uh, it took me uh, about two months to write Death Blood, but it was Death Blood. Okay. Um, but that's. Um, that's also tricky, and and I've written some other stuff. It, it doesn't take me that long to write the script. It takes me longer to outline something, um, and I'm not, um, and I'm not the fastest guy, but I'm not the slowest guy. But if I sit down, if I can get the outline finished, yeah, and that's hard because that's the creative part where you're trying to think of where your story goes. If I could get the outline finished, then um, I could write the scenes, okay. you know, fairly quickly. Um, but basically get, get some packages together so that, you know, the, you know, the, how do you write your scenes? What what do you, so you, you have an outline for the whole story that goes into it. Do you just have like the, you have like characters that you've, you've thought about really quickly mm -hmm. based on the horror. Or do you like do any backstory with them or how, do you, how are you doing it? Um, I kinda, you know, and I think that, um, I'm now okay. Characters are are incredibly important. Of the two, you know, forms of 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 the two narrative forms for film, I'm, I think I favor plot driven narratives a little bit more. Okay. And so, um, the outline is more focused on getting from plot point to plot point, and um and the characters I think appear in the script a little bit more. And and I as an example, you know, 
Um, there were characters that I had in in the outline for Death Blood that that ended up either being combined with other characters in the script or hmm. that actually became who they were in the script. But basically, the outline is you know thirty or forty single bullets. We start here, then we get here, and this is how we get to all these places. Hmm. And then, um, and then the next step that I usually that I'll that I'll do is write each each of those onto a note card um, because that, and then put them in a stack. That would allow me to more easily just rearrange the order of the scenes um, and and make sure that everything is is moving. And then um, and then I'll do the the draft um, hmm. and basically pick up a note card and all right, let's write out let's write out this scene and. Um, you know, hopefully get to about 90 pages and not go like way over yeah. and also not be way under. Uh, I'm probably more afraid of being over. I really prefer shorter movies. I think 90 minutes is a good length for a movie. I think if you're going to be a long movie, which some of my favorite movies are long. Um, what about a 70 hour movie? Well, that's, that's one <laughs> unique exception. I mean, basically, I think if you're going to be that no, long, I'm saying it's Game of Thrones. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I think, I think you've got to be great. I think if you're going to be that long, you have to be great. And Game of Thrones, I think is great on the writing, but in all aspects of that show, I think it's, I think it's pretty stellar, but, uh, well, I was just curious about your writing process in general. Cause I'm writing something now. I have a totally, like I've talked to other screenwriters. I have a way different writing style. So I tell guess. me about it. Um, tell me about your style. Well, so what I'm doing with a script, it's an adaptation of a Nathaniel Hawthorne short story mm -hmm. is I, um, I write it almost as though it's a novel. Okay. And you know, I just I, I but then I think of it as like a visual story that has to be told in visuals only. So I, you know, will take out elements that don't need to be told. Like, you know, I I try not to have too much dialogue. I don't like too much dialogue. Okay. Um <clears throat> I think that I, I I have the end in mind very clearly. I have a very clear theme mm -hmm. that I want to get across of what's happen happening. I have often certain key concepts like sensuality in this one. Sure. Um, that I, and time <clears throat> and, and age that I like want to themes get. that you want to. Yeah. But I, then I have one overarching theme okay. that is the main theme that I think every great work of art has to have sure. something that all the sub elements add up to very purposefully so the characters the the everything goes you know to the question does it add up to this theme mm -hmm. and um people think of like in hollywood the log line right but the log line is like to some degree just a marketing or sales pitch yeah. more than a writing prompt or a writing you know thing i guess i don't know what to call it <clears throat> And, you know, so right now, like I'm writing, I, I know what's going to happen in the three acts, essentially, of this, you know, it's it's supposed to, hopefully a made-for-TV movie type thing is what I was looking for, something that's affordable to produce. Okay. So I could try to actually sell it to a network. That's the, the purpose behind it, motivationally, I guess, besides that I love Hawthorne. And then... um but there's one backstory element that was really got, causing me problems. So I started writing a short story mm -hmm. called Under the Yew Tree, which is about this backstory of what happened to these people 60 years ago or whatever that serves as the backstory for the, all these very old 90-year-old people or something like that. So anyway, 
that so I write it as though I'm writing a novel or a, you know a novella or something like that, and and then you know, but then I put it in a script format with making it visual, you know, in in, in the style and the way you're supposed to do a screenplay, of course. Sure, sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, that 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 makes sense. I think that that um. Let me ask you a question about this then, um, because for me, getting the getting the stuff down, getting the outline down, like I said, is more difficult than getting the, getting the scenes out. But the hardest part is really just developing the overall story to begin with, right? And and so the outline might take me a couple of weeks, and then and then the script might take me a couple of weeks, but I might spend years write just writing down notes or or where a, a specific st- like um uh movie is basically kind of sitting in there and and i have all these notebooks that i you know take to work and write notes and stuff in and each one has a little piece like oh i suddenly oh you know this crime story i get it a little bit further i add another thing and then years I, it takes me years before i touch it again and so i think some things for me will um uh like germinate for a very long time mm-hmm. um and um have you ever heard that um that uh oh, there's like some i can't remember where i where i heard it but it's like this guy he's telling a story about these bamboo trees and that this guy spends five years planting all these seeds and caring for this soil, and you, it, there's like takes all this time for the bamboo to, to um, like germinate in the ground or something, and then like in like five weeks it goes from a sprout to a full standing tree, and then the guy asks mm. the question like, how long did it take for these trees to grow? And of course the answer is that it took the full five years, not just the five weeks. And I don't remember the f- actual details of the well, story. So I, th- I think I know what you're talking about, and. I- I think all art comes from a gathering of all the elements of your whole life and the thoughts you've had. Yeah. Like when you sit down to write, like this is how I've analogized it for myself. I might've even picked this up somewhere. It's like your subconscious is like this massive ocean of observations, thoughts, conversations, books you've read, conclusions you've made about ideas, people, I don't like that person, right? Like that's an idea that locks away in your subconscious. And it's like this massive ocean. And when you write, it's like a little tributary that comes out of that ocean. And so the ocean is always there, mm-hmm. right? And you you should fill up the ocean with more reading, more living, more doing new things. Um, that, that especially if you're a writer, you should try to do new things, read new, read things that aren't in your, you know, watch movies that aren't in your repertoire, read poetry that's not in your repertoire, mm-hmm. um, you know, yada yada yada. So that's all there. So I, you know, in terms of like when it shoots up, the mm-hmm. the sprout like. Like I said, I think that is when it's you've made a decision to write something and then you've set a goal. So I think yeah. those are – so, yeah, I mean there are people who will like take years you know, writing something here and there and that's fine. But I think you should set a goal like I'm, I want to tell this story. I have these characters and it's a story. Like it has a – you know, Aristotle said a beginning, middle, end. It comes to you as some kind of visual or, or however it comes to you. And then you put it on paper and you do the work. That's the hard work that people want to avoid, mm-hmm. right? It's including myself. Like it's a pain in the ass. I should probably be writing right now. <laughs> you know, it's a pain in the ass. But you know that that's what it. That's how I look at writing. 
of do the you, process. Do you write as an exercise outside of what um... – I write all the time. Yeah, I write journals. I have a journal in here. Yeah. I write my thoughts about movies. Mm-hmm. That's like I did a four-part thing on um, episode, podcast video on the Titan – and that started with me just kind of writing some things as I was watching the movie, the Netflix's Netflix is the Titan, okay. which everybody hated. And I was like, this is really amazing. This is such a good piece of art. Sure. And it came out of the journal stuff. Um, I'm a big fan of underlining when I re- read um, books and even copying certain things like writing the copy because I – the Benjamin Franklin had this technique to learn how to write and to be, improve his writing. And John Keats, the poet did something similar where they redid in their own words based on just a few chosen words, each sentence. Mm-hmm. So they'd like choose two or three words, take those words, put them on another piece of paper, do that with every sentence of a piece of work. And then re and then with that words that they chose, you know, then they would rewrite the whole thing. Right. Interesting. And I'm a big fan of doing that. I've done that many times with both nonfiction and fiction. Um, and I even have a short story on, I think it's on the, the troubadourmag.com that is the product of one of these, which is um, the abysmal, dismal Mr. Boomerang. Okay. Which I'll is check it out. based on a short story by Hawthorne again. It's called Wakefield, um, which, um, what's his name? The Bre- Breaking Bad guy. Uh, Cranston. Brian Cranston. Brian Cranston. Yeah. yeah, he did. The, he just did a version of Wakefield um, recently, a movie based on Wakefield. <clears throat> so anyway, I I I do that. I write a ton of synopsis of books and poems, and so yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of constantly writing. That's one of the things I do. I think this is an addition to that. Like discursive conversation is a another way to you know get out and formulate your own thoughts. Yeah. Yeah, that. that makes it easier for me to, you know, write down something later. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's all I got. Sweet. Do you have anything else? That's. I think. I, I think. Uh, I think that's what I got. Yeah. All right, man. Well, next time we'll have to talk about poetry. We didn't get to any of the Simpsons, or we talked a lot about movies. So thank you. Yeah. So no. I, or we talked about the theory behind it. So this is a really. This episode is very good for um, film people interested in film, because I think talking about the auteur theory and you know where Game of Thrones has changed the world, the new mediums. Yeah, I think that's all fascinating. Yeah, and then making your first movie, hopefully, moves into your your next movie that was worth two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and you make a million on that, and then then you're set. Yeah, if you do that once, you're set. For we a could while. just make four times each time that we, you know. Yeah. Well, at least for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right, brother. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I'm going to sign off. And...